0: Welcome to the dinner party.
1: This is your icebreaker. Okay, there's a knock at the door and this man opens the door, looks around, there's no one there. He's about to close it when he notices the snail. And he looks at the snail, "What the heck is this?" He picks up the snail, heaves it out to the street, and closes the door. 3 years later, there's a knock at the door. He opens the door. He looks down, he sees the snail. The snail says, "Hey, what was that about?"
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your
0: weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Brian Cranston, star of the TV show Breaking Bad. That'll help break the ice. Yes. We'll chat with him later on. Also, we interview poet and rock star Patti Smith.
2: And if this all sounds familiar, that's because this is a rebroadcast of one of our audience's favorite episodes from earlier this year. Consider it our holiday gift to you. And to ourselves, since it lets us take the holiday off as well. We give us the nicest gifts. We do. But first, cast your mind back to June when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The
3: L.A. Kings won the Stanley Cup, the first championship in the team's 45-year history.
0: Egypt's Supreme Court has ordered the country's parliament to be dissolved.
3: Banker Jamie
4: Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase told Congress, I am sorry and I was wrong.
2: Now for something you might not have heard. We are talking with John Spong. He is a senior editor at Texas Monthly Magazine. John, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Uh,
5: this past week, the Texas Department of Transportation announced that a part of the toll road between Austin and San Antonio is going to be bumped up to 85 miles per hour <laughs> speed limit, making it wow. the fastest stretch of highway in these United States.
2: Just what we needed. And soon to be the <laughs> highest car insurance rates in the country, I'm guessing.
0: Is it really, bo- like, what goes on between Austin and San Antonio? Do people just not want to be there and you just want to move <laughs> through there as quickly as possible? Is well, that what's The happening? interesting
5: thing is that it's a, there's the stretch of interstate I-35 that goes from San Antonio to Austin and it's bumper to bumper pretty much the whole seventy five miles. Tons it's, it's of traffic. At a standstill. Mm. So maybe this will make some kind of difference. That's the big hope.
2: But does it really need to be eighty five
0: miles an hour? I mean what's the thinking behind this? What what was wrong with seventy five? I think
5: it's all the pickup trucks that are driving with the tailgates down which just necessarily makes you go faster. And so we had to do something <laughs> To catch the laws up with our drivers. All <laughs> oh, right.
0: There's something about the aerodynamics of the, the pickup tail. It's kind of acts as yeah. kind of a wind. It makes them jet-like. <laughs> I do have
2: a question, though. Is this the fastest road in the world now? I mean, is it faster than the Autobahn
5: or anything? There's apparently a stretch of highway in Poland that's uh, 86 miles an hour,
0: Ooh, roughly. Ooh,
2: edging so, out Texas. So two more miles per hour in Texas would have had the fastest road? Come
5: on, you really need to campaign yeah. to have
2: this go up to 87. <laughs> that sounds like a worrisome m- moment of actual <laughs> restraint from Texas. Is everything all right down there? We're not
5: paying as nearly as much attention to the Polish media as we need to be, obviously. <laughs>
2: uh, all right, John Spong, thanks so much for the small talk.
5: No, no, thank you all.
2: And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our bespoke history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1920, a group of
0: politicians gathered in a hotel room and a political cliche was born. Now the folks at your dinner party probably won't know what it was. Mm. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. On June 11th,
3: 1920, the most important room in American politics, wasn't in Washington, D.C. It was in Chicago, where the Republican Party had finished the third day of its national convention and still hadn't picked a presidential candidate. The holdup? Well, it didn't help that they had 12 candidates to choose from. Convention delegates split their votes among them. So the two most popular candidates still couldn't get enough votes to win the nomination. And neither would step aside and let the other one win. With the party deadlocked and looking more disorganized by the second, a handful of Republican leaders took matters into their own hands. They retired to a sweltering hot suite in the Blackstone Hotel, lit up cigars, and decided among themselves who should get a shot at the presidency. They picked Warren G. Harding a mild Ohio senator who had entered the convention with only 6% support. But he had a good speaking voice, and hey, as his campaign manager said, he looked like a president. The next day, Harding won the nomination. A reporter described the scene at the Blackstone as, quote, a meeting in a smoke-filled room a term that's now shorthand for any secret deal made by politicians behind closed doors, cigars or not. As for the original room, the Blackstone now calls it the smoke-filled room. And a stay there will cost you between 800 and 3,000 bucks a night. Unless you know folks who can pull a few strings.
0: So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to go along with it. I am joined by Nandini Cowan. She works at the Violet Hour, which is a cocktail bar in Chicago, not far from this famous smoke-filled room. Nandini, I trust there's no smoke at the Violet Hour anymore.
6: No smoke, but smoky things inside.
0: Smoky things. Are they going to make it into the drink?
6: Oh, yeah, definitely.
0: Well, let's hear it. What, what drink do you have in store for us?
6: I created a drink called the Dark Horse.
0: The Dark Horse. I like it because Harding was the Dark Horse candidate.
6: Yeah. So in the drink, I built a quarter ounce of South American brown sugar, quarter ounce of Malort, which is a super Chicago liqueur, really, really bitter, kind of like grapefruit zest. Tire, fire, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) A little bit of burnt rubber to it. Um, Eighth ounce of green chartreuse, half an ounce of Smith & Cross rum, one and a half ounces of Weller 107 bourbon, 13 drops of tobacco bitters, stir it over the rocks, and then pour it into a fresh glass that has a rinse of LaFroigue in it.
0: Which is a smoky scotch.
6: And then top it off with campfire bitters and add a lemon zest.
0: But I can't let this pass. You actually have tobacco bitters in your bar? Like, do people request that?
6: You know, we have, a, like, about 30 different kinds of house-made bitters. One is tobacco bitters, which has toasted cedar and apple notes in it, and then wow. campfire bitters, which is made from black tea called Lapsang Suchong, and they smoke... <laughs> this tea over, like, pine? Yeah,
0: I've had that tea. It smells like you were hanging out drinking beer in the woods around a campfire on that.
6: Completely. You definitely get that campfire scent off the drink afterwards.
0: So maybe if your partner's a smoker and you're going to maybe kiss them later, you would maybe want some tobacco bitter so your mouth, too, tastes like an ashtray. Is that what I'm thinking?
6: Totally. I mean, everybody likes <laughs> ashtray breath, right? <laughs>
2: And, Brendan, like Nandini's bar, although you can stay in the original smoke-filled room, you can no longer smoke in it. Oh, it's that's true story. too bad. Yeah, it's too bad.
0: But you can console yourself on their complimentary black helicopter shuttle.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Back and forth to wherever, you, to the Masonic Lodge, maybe. <laughs>
2: Folks, you can find the recipe for the Dark Horse and over 100 other historical cocktails on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, The Guest List, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things.
0: And today our guest is actress Sasha Mamet on the very different TV shows Mad Men and Girls. She plays two very different roles, and she is here with a list of her favorite performances by other actors who did the same.
7: Hi, my name is Sasha Mamet. You might know me from my role as Joyce, crazy lesbian on Mad Men. It's like men this vegetable soup and... You can't put them on a plate or eat them off the counter, so women are the pot. And also my role on girls playing Shoshana, a very young virgin. For me, my littlest baggage would probably be my IBS. My medium baggage would be that I truly don't love my grandmother. Like, you don't love her at all? mm hmm
6: So what would your biggest baggage be?
7: That I'm a virgin, obviously. This is my list of actors who I think did an excellent job playing against type. Marilyn Monroe in Don't Bother to Knock. As most people in the living world would know, Marilyn Monroe was, I think, known for her busty, blonde, sort of semi ditzy roles. 7 year itch or Some Like It Hot. What's the matter with you anyway? I'm not very bright, I guess. I wouldn't say that. Careless, maybe. No, just dumb. If I had any brains, I wouldn't be on this crummy train with this crummy girl's band. But in Don't Bother to Knock, she plays this kind of, I would say, homely, very sad, questionably, as the movie goes on, mentally ill young woman who's called upon to babysit this young child. And it's really sad and sort of terrifying.
3: Do you have a doll at home? Yes. Josephine. What if it cried and pestered and spied on you? You'd want to get rid of it, wouldn't you? You turn over and go to sleep. Don't utter one sound.
7: From what we have been told of what she was like behind the scenes, her darkness and her depression and it almost feels like like I read her diary. What she reveals emotionally, it seems like something very deeply personal. Another item on my list, Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain. The thing that I knew him most as before that was 10 Things I Hate About You. That movie was amazing, that was like my childhood. He's sort of the hot troublemaker and Julia Stiles is the very booky, artsy girl at this high school. And then of course they end up falling in love because it's a movie. Sorry, spoiler alert.
5: This is a one-shot thing we got going on here. You know I ain't queer. Me neither.
7: And in contrast, Brokeback Mountain, where he plays a closeted gay cowboy who falls in love with Jake Gyllenhaal when they are wrangling cattle up in in the hills and playing this kind of pent-up manly human and then also showing this intense vulnerability where he not only is a closeted individual, but then taking part in this love affair that's so intensely forbidden. I would say it's a little bit different from 10 Things I Hate About You. Just a little bit. My last great performance against type is Peter Sellers in Being There. I know him most as the original Pink Panther. Pink Panther was this French investigator who would try and solve crimes and get into uh, very funny, slapsticky moments while doing so.
0: Does your dog bite? No. <laughs> I thought you said your dog did not bad. That is not my talk.
7: So, so good. The best. And then he did Being There. It's still a very funny movie, but also very dark and very kind of quiet. The tone is very just sort of subdued, and Peter Sellers plays this questionably not all there human being who sort of finds his way to the top of the world in a roundabout sort of way.
5: On television, Mr. President, you look much smaller.
7: He's so funny but very contained, totally the opposite end of the spectrum. I think I like seeing actors play against type because I like playing against type. I as an actor, the reason that I like doing this is because I, I get to play other people. I get to dress up as weird humans and for that I'm not myself for a couple of hours
2: the guest list from Zasha Mamet she's on the TV show Mad Men and also on Girls which has its season finale this weekend
0: Enrico lest you think it's just another teen comedy 10 Things I Hate About You oh yes based on Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew see now that guy I think couldn't write against type
2: oh yeah yeah cause he invented the types <laughs> there's nowhere to go
5: yeah. People,
2: we're going to take a break when we get back. Etiquette, Father's Day style. And later, Brian Cranston
0: of TV's Breaking Bad. Stick around. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, author Nathaniel Rich reads us a story
2: which convinced someone to buy a worthless item for 57 bucks. wonder if he used to be in real estate. I don't know. A few years back. <laughs> And later on in the show, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and National Book Award winner Patty Smith makes a confession.
4: I don't have any real skills.
2: Actually, not a confession so much as a lie. Yeah, But before we get to that, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
0: And today we have a special Father's Day edition. Here to answer your etiquette questions is Lizzie Post, the great-great-grandchild of Emily Post. But that's not unusual. Uh, She comes by with her cousin, Daniel, once a month. Hello, Lizzie.
8: (laughs) Hello. Uh,
0: But we switched things up this time, and she is joined by her father, Peter Post. They're a father and daughter duo, perhaps the most polite father-daughter duo in the world. Am (laughs) I wrong, guys?
8: In public, we are. In public,
0: absolutely. We're the best. (laughs) So we have some Father's Day related questions. But also, Peter, you just released an updated second edition of your bestseller, Essential Manners for Men. Yeah. You know, it's kind of thrilling in this day and age to have gender-specific manners. What's the biggest distinction between man manners And other
9: manners, you know, I think it's a matter of awareness as much as anything else for men. Okay, there's a lack of awareness, they do something, and then afterwards, somebody points it out to me. Go, my gosh, I didn't realize I screwed up that badly. I I wish I'd known, I wouldn't have done it again.
0: I have no idea what you're talking about, Peter. That never happens. (laughs) yeah I know you don't. (laughs) Um, I will say, though, Peter, I used your advice the other night. I was invited out for a drink, the bill came, and in my head, I'm like, well. Peter Post said that the person who invites should pay for the drink. And then this person who invited me just kind of looked at me, and I finally was like, oh, I'll, I'll grab the drink. I think that may have been a gender thing. And mm. afterwards, I made the mistake
9: of saying, you know, Peter Post says
4: <laughs>
9: that you were actually supposed to pay for that drink. Yeah. is that Was I right? Absolutely. The person doing the inviting does the paying. That's the mm. basic rule. However, you know, especially if this was a woman that you were with, and she'd done the inviting, but the check was sitting there for a few minutes, Picking it up and dealing with it uh, would have been an act of chivalry, which would be okay. Yeah, but if it was a guy, then you should just let it sit there for like an hour. Yeah.
0: let's, uh, Let's ask you some of these questions. The first one is actually Father's Day related. You ready for this? Shoot. Go for it. This comes from Julia in Waco, Texas. And she says, My dad is, and this is all in caps, the most impossible person to shop for. I usually pride myself in gift-giving, so it's ironic and crazy that such a major person in my life gets the lamest presents. He smiles anyway. Aww. This might not be an etiquette question, I'm realizing, but any cool tips? <laughs>
8: like, no, but he sounds
0: like I me, I'll gonna, tell you that. And she
8: sounds just like me. Why are dads <laughs> like, so
0: impossible to shop for? It is true. Yeah.
8: They're impossible because there's, I mean, okay... Cue the sappy music. They are <laughs> such an important person in your life, and there's someone that always gets you the best gifts. Well, speak for and, yourself. Like, but... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but. It becomes that challenge where if you're the type of person who really does care about the gift that you're giving to someone, you always want it to be great. And I think Mm. sometimes you forget that the greatest thing could be something that to you probably seems kind of lame. And my dad and I have the perfect example, and that's golf balls.
9: Right. Absolutely. You know, a sleeve of golf balls. Yeah. And people think that's the most lame present. No thought. No thought. No thought. I got a dozen great golf balls I'm a happy guy do you play golf yeah, yeah <laughs> it, it makes a big difference huh? <laughs> right if you didn't play golf the golf balls probably doesn't do it because right. oh, I was going to say
8: yeah, right. what does your dad like to do what What are the types of things that interest yeah. him and, and go with that
0: but so if my dad likes to be alone and read the paper I should probably just not even come visit <laughs> right day. is that what you're
8: saying <laughs> right or get him a
9: subscription <laughs> to the paper <laughs>
0: right. For the man
2: who has everything give him the tools to ignore his children <laughs> uh, here's a question from Catherine this is via the love Town of Facebook, Ooh. Catherine writes, What's the best way to politely correct someone when they make an assumption about your name? My name is Catherine, but lots of people assume it's fine to call me Kathy. I usually just Ooh. say, Actually, I go
0: by, but it always seems like that puts people off. PD and uh, Elizabeth, you guys wouldn't have anything to say about this, would you? <laughs> Lizzo,
8: <laughs> actually. I I think she's doing the best she can. Your name is your name, and it's really important that people get it right and also that they respect that it's what you want to be called. I I really don't like being called Beth. Even being called Liz, it's weird, but by certain people, it just sounds like you're trying to be too familiar with me.
2: Well, what about from the point of view of the person who has just met you and sort of wants to call you by something other than perhaps a long first name or something or a name that seems too formal? How does a person broach that topic?
9: Yeah, you say, if you first met me, you might say, would you prefer Peter or Pete? But mm-hmm. why do I want
8: to try to shorten your name or try to call you something that you're not going to recognize? Why am I trying to do that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. So the advice is Kathy, keep sticking up for your name. Right.
0: And uh, Brendy, I think you have another question from our audience. <laughs> okay, Ricardo. Um, this is a question from Serena. Serena says Like many in the country right now, I'm on a job hunt. I asked a recent supervisor for a recommendation letter, and she wrote a wonderful, kind one. But I noticed two separate typos, one of which is my name. <laughs> To me, this looks very unprofessional.
9: Should I just let it go, or will her mistake reflect poorly on me help? There are some situations which are just really nasty, and this Mm -hmm. is one of them. But you got to get it corrected. you got no choice. So you have to talk to the person. You have to say, I really appreciate the letter tremendously, but there's a couple of small typos in it, and I I really want it to look absolutely perfect, and I'm sure you do too. Would you mind correcting these? (laughs) I'm detecting mm. a theme now
2: of uh, being straightforward and telling people things honestly and truthfully. And that makes me uncomfortable.
8: <laughs> <laughs> we could go back to passive-aggressive. You, you, you've,
9: hit, you've hit it on the nail, but it's, it's benevolent honesty as opposed mm. to the brutal honesty. And that's one of the things we make a distinction about. <laughs> but there is also a shade
0: like benevolent honesty dips into passive-aggressive because you're, you're probably going to say something like, hey, I think you might have made it. Typo or two here. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you're going to circle your name
9: and give it back to them. <laughs> or or so, even better yet, I'm concerned for you. I wouldn't want it to look bad for you. Yes, There's a typo uh, in this. And so yes. I was hoping you might want to fix it. Now
2: I feel better. <laughs> now I feel like I'm in comfortable territory. There we go. All right. Uh, here's our last question. Rico,
0: We've... I really want you to ask this last question. I think
2: it would be great. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be best for you if I asked this last question, Brendan. <laughs> this is a question that actually we wanted to ask you, Peter. You are in the rare position of being the father of a family and the family is also
9: your business. It's hard enough not being a jerk in one of those roles. How do you manage both? <laughs> My theory about a business is the person who's running a business is running a small and very benevolent dictatorship. But when you're talking about family, I don't think of a family as a small, benevolent dictatorship. It's a little bit more collaborative and it's a, in, in the approach to dealing with issues. The other thing that happens in the family, which is pretty good, is is that I don't think there's a whole lot of big disagreement about anything. There's not a time when when I have to sort of lay down law at the Emily Post Institute no, or anything. I mean,
8: I would say there – i like to disagree a little bit. I mean, I
9: I'm think so that, inclusive.
8: Come yeah, on. No, you are. I Wait, think we may, may be guys...
2: hearing the first ever argument between We, got we did it, on it tape. Rico.
0: We did
8: it. I, I think there are definitely times where I've seen you take the time to listen to everyone and say, I'm the head of this business or one of the heads of this business, I have to make a decision now. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make everybody happy, but it goes with the the main advice that my dad teaches in all of his seminars, which is you choose the solution that is best for as many people involved as possible.
2: And may all dads be so wise. Yep. <laughs> Peter Post and Lizzie Post, father and daughter etiquette experts,
0: thanks for telling our audience how to behave.
8: Thank Please you guys welcome. for having us.
0: Peter Post has just released a second edition of his best selling book, Essential Manners for Men What to Do, When to Do It, and Why. Sounds comprehensive. <laughs> it is. It is. Oh. I haven't thought for myself since I read it. Perfect.
2: Uh, folks, if you are tired of thinking for yourself, we can subcontract your etiquette questions to a future guest. Just submit your queries via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
9: to eavesdrop.
0: Significant Objects is a new collection of very short stories about ordinary things. 100 writers contributed to the book. One of them is novelist and New York Times contributor Nathaniel Rich, and today we overhear him reading from it.
10: My name is Nathaniel Rich, a writer. I was asked to participate in a project called Significant Objects, in which writers were sent objects that were bought for a dollar or less at thrift stores and, and told to write stories about them. And then the objects were put on eBay and sold, along with the stories written about them, to see if the stories increased their value. My object was a little rhino figurine. And it has this this gleaming eye and this very prominent horn, which I thought was a nose when I started writing about it. (laughs) Didn't occur to me until halfway through that it's just a normal horn and I wrote a kind of sales pitch for this rhinoceros and auction started at a dollar and it ended up selling for $57. And I think the money went to a charitable source, but I think that the charitable source was me, but I'd have to check my tax records. All right, here it is. Do you ever struggle to remember insignificant facts? Facts so small and irrelevant to the natural course of your life that you wonder how you ever learned them in the first place? and yet your inability to recall them infuriates you. Who is the actor in that Greek film, you know, the one with Melina Mercury from the 60s? What do you call the stick that leprechauns carry? Is it man on the run or band on the run? What's your cousin's girlfriend's name? Who is that famous autistic lady who writes about what it's like to be an animal? The answer to all of these questions and more will be answered when you come into proud possession of the rhinoceros nose, K-N-O-W-S. Whenever you feel stumped, simply rub its nose, N-O-S-E, also known as its horn. You will feel a jolt of energy in your neurons, your synapses will grow extra sticky, and your frontal lobe will throb pleasantly. Also, the rhinoceros' eye will, ever so subtly, twinkle. And then, in no more than five minutes, the answers will come. Phaedra is not a Greek film, but an American film set in Greece. The actor is Tony Perkins. Shillelagh. Band on the run, Candace, Temple Grandin. One warning, the rhinoceros' nose must not be misused. Should you try to retrieve a more significant memory, when did I first tell him that I loved him, the rhinoceros' nose will shut down. From its eye will descend, ever so subtly, a tear. It will know no more. Study the image of this talisman. You will see that the body is heavily crosshatched as an elderly palm or a balled up sheet of aluminum foil that has been carefully unfurled and pressed into its original form. These creases are important, for there's exactly one for every question you are permitted to ask. Do not go over your limit. The total number of creases is unknown and impossible to count. But woe to the person who asks one too many questions. On that occasion, as soon as you rub the rhinoceros's nose, you will feel a rather violent knock behind your forehead, and your short-term memory will vanish altogether. You will be left only with the answers the rhinoceros has already given you, and your brain will cycle through them, nonsensically, for the rest of your life. You must pass the rhinoceros nose on to another person before you reach that point. Trust me. It is a waking hell. Writer
2: Nathaniel Rich reading his contribution to the book Significant Objects, which comes out in a few weeks. It's basically a stack of about five bucks worth of paper, but the stories inside make it worth much more. And you are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media.
0: And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party— the food yes and Brendan you are about to hear me ingest shrubs <laughs> clearly we are not paying you enough
2: <laughs> leave the hedges alone No, I, that is what went through my mind too when I first heard the term but these shrubs are actually drink ingredients ah. they're kind of old-fashioned vinegar-based syrups and the LA Times recently spotted a trend of these things showing up in fancy cocktails around oh town.
0: great cocktails needed to get more complicated
2: Absolutely. Just so <laughs> but actually, this week I spoke with Joseph Centeno. He is chef of the excellent LA restaurant Baco Mercat, and he also uses shrubs in pretty tasty non-alcoholic drinks. First though, I asked him to explain what a shrub
11: is. It's uh, an infused vinegar that's uh, fermented slightly for about seven days before we cook it with sugar, strain it, cool it, and from there we add soda water and ice or it goes into our cocktails.
2: So it's kind of a trend to use these mixtures now, but they are not a new invention,
11: right? Shrub, drinking vinegars have been around for a really long time. As far back as like 18th century, they were used a lot for medicinal purposes. Uh, A lot of Asian countries, straight vinegar is consumed for health benefits. Was that the attraction to you, this kind of cultural history? Well, when I was conceptualizing what I wanted Baco to be, I wanted to have a soda that was unique and different and something that I could make in-house. And when I was a kid, my grandmother would serve me Sprite and apple cider vinegar. Really? Kind of just, it would kind of calm my nerves. And I kind of forgot about it. Then it started to resurface just talking with her again and, and my parents. Sprite
2: and vinegar. What tradition does that come
11: from? Well, my grandmother's mom was from central Mexico, Puebla. Back when she was a kid, it was probably way more vinegar. The Sprite was a little bit harder to come by? Yeah. It was probably like distilled vinegar that was like on the shelf that she was drinking when she had like an upset stomach. or. But it makes sense. So
2: this childhood drink of vinegar and Sprite inspired you to try these shrubs, which are basically fermented vinegar and sugary flavorings.
11: And since they tend to be on the savory side, they're actually really food friendly. Where you have like Italian sodas which are like really sweet syrups. This was more of a savory, which is more in line with the style of cooking that we're doing here. Sounds a little it does have a little bit of that
2: kombucha quality. It's like a fermented vinegary type of thing.
11: Well, I'm not a I don't really enjoy kombucha <laughs> but I wanted to take something that people are like, Oh, vinegar, I don't want to drink vinegar and have it be more pleasing. Actually wanna try some? Yeah, I will. Actually, now here's the thing. When I first heard about this, it got me really excited because I'm one of
2: those guys that when I get Asian food, I will actually take the rice vinegar and the soy sauce and actually sip it like a shot. And is this what it's going to be like?
11: No, I hope it's a little bit more pleasant than that. (laughs) I'm assuming so. So here's the chicha morada. This is the one that we make out of uh, the Peruvian purple corn, and it has cinnamon and allspice, clove, pineapple and banana. Give this one a try.
2: So this is a pretty complex process. Sounds like you've got the entire grocery store in here. Oh man, that is totally not what I thought that was gonna be like. It's like the most refined soda that I've had. There's actual soda water in here, right? It's not super fizzy or anything. It's kind of floral, almost.
11: Yeah, well, I mean, we got a lot of aromatic spices, kind of hints of the holidays with the cinnamon and the clove and allspice.
2: You mentioned earlier the Italian sodas. It is kind of like that with the syrupy edge off of it.
11: Yeah, I didn't want to have, like, I'm, my palate sways more savory than sweet. And for people who don't drink a lot of alcohol, this is an interesting alternative to just water or tea. So what do we got here? This is the ginger pineapple soda.
2: All right. I'm imagining this to be a little bit more spicy.
11: It's not going to be as spicy as like you'd get like a ginger beer because it's not as concentrated. Yeah. It's
2: really amazing. Like You've kind of found the missing link between a ginger beer and a ginger ale.
11: You want to be able to drink it. You don't want to be like overwhelmed after a couple of sips. Yeah. You want to be able to drink it through the course of your meal. All right. And this final this one? Wakatai. Uh, it's a Peruvian mint. And this is the one that's most similar to like a kombucha style. But Still, I feel a little bit more pleasant.
2: So this is going to be a little more... I'm going to taste the vinegar oh, we'll here.
11: See. Let's we'll see. What do you think?
2: All right, let's see. Oh, yeah. But only after you swallow it. Like, at first, it's actually kind of very light and refreshing.
11: Way more herbaceous and, and has that kind of grassy type note to it.
2: And I will definitely say that this resembles not at all soy sauce and rice vinegar. Oh, good. So
0: congratulations. <laughs> I'm glad you see the difference. <laughs> So, Rico, sounds tasty. It definitely was. But shrubs, you didn't ask him about the name shrubs. I did What's actually. <laughs> he didn't know.
2: Actually, I ah. asked several bartenders and no one knew. So, I asked our favorite linguistic historian about it Google. Mrs. Google. Yes. And she said it comes from the Arabic word sharaba, which means to drink.
0: Oh, ah. yeah. But that still doesn't explain why plant shrubs are called shrubs
2: because uh, they look shrubby.
0: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen,
2: <laughs> We're going to take a break. Coming up, punk poet Patti Smith talks about her new album, When The Dinner Party Returns.
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico
2: Galliano. In a few minutes, actor Bryan Cranston, star of Breaking Bad, tells us about hating
0: hand-me-downs. But first, we meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's musician, writer, and poet Patti Smith. Her 1975 debut album, Horses, earned her the title Godmother of Punk. Don't you wish you had that title, Rico? I did, for a while. It's inexplicable. (laughs) Um, She has since released 10 (laughs) albums to critical acclaim. In 2007, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Mm -hmm. and her 2010 memoir, Just Kids, earned her the National Book Award. She just released a new album called Banga, and when I met with her recently, I asked her about the title.
4: Banga is a dog in Bulgakov's masterpiece, The Master and Margarita, and he's Pontius Pilate's dog, probably the most loyal and loving dog in all of literature. He waited with Pilate for 2,000 years on the edge of heaven while Pilate waited to speak to Jesus Christ. And I thought, that dog deserves a salute, it deserves a song.
0: I believe that you wrote it by yourself, but you also had assistance from people like Johnny Depp. Can you, can you just explain? I don't think of Patti Smith and Johnny Depp
4: hanging out. Johnny and I have a lot in common. We both love books. He's an avid reader. He has a beautiful collection of letters of Dylan Thomas. And uh, we always laugh. We're like two nerds. You know, people say, what do you and Johnny Depp do? Well, we sit on the floor and look at books and things, you know.
0: And record music, apparently.
4: I was in Puerto Rico, and I got this idea for Benga and I was afraid I would forget it. So he's always recording and playing. I mean, he's as much musician as he is actor. So he recorded me doing a vocal idea and he said he would send it to me. And he did like two weeks later, but he likes to toy with stuff. So um, he played drums, bass, and put on a couple of electric guitars and sent it to me, you know, just as a a present. this
0: album has extensive liner notes and they are filled with references to creators like Tarkovsky and Jean-Luc Godard and Gogol and Sun Ra. You clearly have a really intense relationship with art. I was wondering if you could kind of tell me about the role art plays in your life.
4: It's all I ever wanted to be was an artist. Uh, I didn't have any other aspirations, nor am I talented with, uh, of anything. My mother was a waitress and hired me when I was 15 and fired me the same day because I was such a bad waitress. I don't have any real skills. When
0: well, your memoir, Just Kids, it's clear that you have this heightened aesthetic sensibility. You know, what you wear, how you eat, where you live. It's, it's kind of all based on your personal style in a way.
4: I've always been driven aesthetically. You're right. Uh, in fact, it used to get me in trouble when I was a kid. I would wear the same clothes every day to school because I'd pick out, like, I had an old sailor blouse and an old blue skirt. That's what I wanted to wear. I had a uniform consciousness. I couldn't bear wearing clothes I didn't relate to. I didn't like having my hair fixed. You know, even the, the teacup that I drank from, I didn't like plastic. I liked porcelain. I can't explain why. I just, you know, developed, um, my aesthetics very early and they were by 12 totally defined
0: I'm not sure how to bring this up exactly, but I'm going to try to. (laughs) So lots of people look up to you, but a lot of women in particular, at least in my life, really look to you. And I wonder if um, how aware of that you are and how, if at all, it colors your work.
4: I am aware of it because they tell me, and I'm quite proud of that. But really, I'm a humanistic worker. And as a mother, I have a son and a daughter. I'm concerned with both of their rights.
0: So it sounds like you write for all genders, Uh, Yet on this album, there are tributes to two female artists, Amy Winehouse and the actress Maria Schneider, uh, who's best known for her role in The Last Tango in Paris.
4: I'm girl-friendly, of course. (laughs) I didn't plan to write them, but when we were recording, Maria Schneider died. And I knew Maria in the 70s. She traveled with us a bit when we toured Horses in 76. Just image-wise and just her energy is so a part of my memory of that particular time. Last Tango in Paris and The Passenger. Uh, The song Maria is for Maria, but it's also for a time. It's probably the most personal in that way song on the record.
0: Going back and looking at your other interviews, you often mention that a song starts with a poem for you. Where where did the poem start?
4: It's really not quite true. I don't know how that was interpreted. Poetry to me is very separate from songwriting normally. It's very solitary, and I don't really write poetry with the people in mind. I just write it sometimes for myself. The little poem for Amy Winehouse is an exception. I wrote it as a poem. I didn't expect to have a song Uh, made from it but my bass player Tony Shanahan wrote a piece of music that he played for me as I was sitting in electric lady working on my poem and they just merged perfectly This is the girl for whom all tears fall This is the girl who is having a ball Just a dark smear in the ice, spirited away, buried in
0: well, we have two standard questions we ask our guests. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews?
4: I guess the one that I don't like the most, because in a way it's annoying and presumptuous, is people always ask me what I did in the 80s. You know, I was married in 1980, and I withdrew from public life. I had two children. I wrote continuously. I studied. I did a million domestic tasks. So the 80s for me were not a void because one isn't in public life does not mean one isn't doing anything.
0: And you've certainly returned to the public sphere without missing a beat. Uh, So our other standard request is tell us something we don't know It can be about you or the world at large.
4: I don't know if people know this or not. It's not so important. But a lot of people think that because I'm very uh, cavalier about my dress, about my appearance, that I don't care about fashion or I have no respect for fashion. But I have always loved high fashion. I learned about photography And a lot about art through fashion magazines when I was quite young. And um, if I mourn anything, it's just that I've never really been able to carry off the black dress like Ava Gardner.
0: I have to admit, I don't want to see, no offense, I just... Well, it
4: wouldn't be a pretty sight. It's a, no,
0: no, I don't mean aesthetically, I just mean i see seen you in a Prada dress. I mean, although it's a work of art, I just, that's, that's not your style.
4: I like a lot of things. I guess really, in the end, what I'm saying is, people get, they think they have one idea of who I am, but I believe in what Walt Whit- Whitman said. You know, we contain multitudes. And, uh, you know, when I was a young girl... I wanted to be an artist, but I used to dream about being a model.
0: Enrico, although it's surprising to learn that Patti Smith wishes she could wear a little black dress. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. But it's it's not so crazy to know that she's interested in fashion. All right. If you remember the, you know, the cover of her first album features an iconic photo of her wearing a white dress hmm. shirt and an undone black tie. I know it well. Yeah, and that picture prompted many women in the 70s to adopt her style, including Maria Schneider. Apparently, when they first met, she was dressed like Patti Smith on her album cover. Wow. Yeah. And now it's spread
2: beyond the fashion world to, like, the guys at Geek Squad.
0: <laughs> yes, the godmothers of computing. Yeah, they're cutting edge <laughs> over there. Uh, folks, we do not have an album cover, but our photos on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: All right. So, Brendan, speaking of style, next weekend here in L.A., the design magazine Dwell hosts its annual Dwell on Design conference.
0: Also known as the People in Cool Glasses
2: Festival. Yes. <laughs> there will be your typical architecture and design geeks there. Geeks like us, by the way. We've both written for Dwell. Don't deny True. it. Yes. But there's one guy attending who people might not expect, Brian Cranston. He has won three consecutive Emmys as the star of TV's Breaking Bad. He played the dad and Malcolm in the Middle. Of course. But he is also working with architects to construct a super environmentally friendly house for his family in Ventura, California. At Dwell on Design, he's going to talk about green architecture. When I spoke to him the other day, we talked about green living in general. Uh, What first drew you to this issue?
1: I was brought up to be... Environmentally conscious. We were recycling back when nobody even combined those words. <laughs> Before it was cool. Before it was even understood. Uh, I guess, you know, because my parents were children during the Depression and everything mm. was reused and, you know, we were hand me downs. And I had a lot of resentment toward it. And I realized at a certain point as I matured that I was, you know, creating a lot of energy toward pushing it away. And then I finally realized, well, this is a part of me. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, it makes sense. So instead of rebelling, you embraced it. It was too much. of my, I, I, The only thing that we rebelled on, and I, every kid does, is the hand-me-downs, uh-huh. is to get your bigger brother's clothes or something. It was just... Recycled clothes. Come on. <laughs> but, you know, we were of a lower middle-class economic level. And, you know, that's what people did. They used to darn socks. Can you imagine that? The idea of sewing a hole in a sock. Today, we wouldn't even dream of keeping a, a holy sock. How it goes. And actually, I mean, it's kind of
2: interesting you talk about your middle-class upbringing. A lot of people think of you from your role as the dad on Malcolm in the Middle, and that mm-hmm. lower middle-class house in that shows notoriously packed with
1: junk, yeah. which is a far cry from the home you built for yourself, which seems really cleanly designed and kind of spare. I think so, because, you know, I was also raised with that. In a lower economic status, I think people have a tendency to keep more, because you never know if you're going to need it. You, oh, know, yeah, you right. can't afford to go out and buy something, so you start storing and storing. In our neighborhoods, no one was able to park their car in their garage. That was like, no, that's for storage of things and stuff we may need. And I've fortunately gotten away from that. That's not a fond memory of mine and being around excess things. And the older I get also, the less things I want and the more experiences I'm after. So and I just, I just like things clean. Well, let's talk about this very clean and actually
2: more importantly, green yeah. house. This is an extremely green place, right? I mean, we're not just talking
1: solar panels on the roof here. Well, I wanted to have a house to be uh, environmentally uh, responsible. So I approached the U.S. Green Building Council and I said, what is it going to take to get a LEED certified platinum level? Which is, I guess, the highest level of, of... It is the highest level they issue. And there aren't many. There are some LEED platinum businesses, but there aren't a lot of platinum-level homes. And you've also gone for something called passive house certification? Well, the passive house, you go through a rigorous checklist, the orientation of the house, the heat collection, of course, using solar, um, the UV protection from fenestration. Basically how well the windows block UV rays. Things like that. So it's not only working to make it environmentally friendly, but also health conscious. And with our lead platinum level, the two of them together will constitute a pretty rare feat. There may be two others in North America that have this achievement. You
2: have said that you wanted to make the house green without sacrificing style or convenience. What in the house would people be most surprised to find is actually green?
1: Uh, I think that probably the most is is the advancement in appliances now. Appliances have historically been energy zappers. But now with the new technology, the entire refrigerator and freezer runs off the equivalent of a 100-watt light bulb. Does it keep things cold? <laughs> exactly. No, 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 no. There's salmonella, sure, but oh, no. Sure. No, no. Um who cares? And you we find that now in all the things we're we're looking into as far as dishwashers and stovetops and you know we you have an invection stovetop oven from Wolf. You have to use special pots, and it only heats the pot. It doesn't heat the room. Oh, interesting. So it's cool to the touch all the way around it. Right, which I guess means less need for air conditioning. We don't have air conditioning. Really? We don't have blowing heat. Heating and air conditioning ducts, air ducts, Mm-hmm. are probably the worst offender as far as loss of energy. And then a lot of dirt gets in there and you have to have a company come out and their trucks and they, it's a lot of maintenance. So it's interesting. It's not just about
2: saving resources within the house, but also making the house so that others don't have to expend resources helping you upkeep it.
1: Well, exactly right. We, and, and without sacrificing lifestyle. Because we don't—I think a lot of people have this idea that, oh, well, to live, you know, a green, responsible way, you're you're having—the bathroom's outside, you're on burlap (laughs) sheets, and, you know, it's like, no, no, no. You know, I wanted to ask, I don't think of you primarily as an
2: activist, whereas, you know, I think of, say, Ed Begley Jr. or some other actors, and that's one of the first things that comes to mind about them. Do you actively avoid that? Or is this something that you'd eventually like to happen? Like, are you keen to be identified with these issues?
1: I certainly am not putting up any energy to push away from it. And if we can live comfortably and save the planet, you're kidding me. Of course I would have to you know, stand on a soapbox. Why not? And Brendan, I have to
2: admit it was weird talking about saving the planet with the guy whose character on Breaking Bad murders people with chemicals.
0: Yeah, there's a disconnect there. (laughs) Talk about against type. And that's the show this week, folks. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks to Bill Lance, Jeff Peters, Peter Clowney, and our friends at the public radio show Marketplace.
2: And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from
0: this weekend's dinner parties. Frank Ocean is the smoothest member of popular rap collective Odd Future. Mm. He's written songs for artists like Beyonce and John Legend, but on July 17th, he releases his own debut album, Channel Orange. Here's a song from it called Pyramids. Bon Appetit.
1: We'll run to the future Shining
0: like diamonds In a rocky world I keep
3: keep world Our skin like bronzing Our hair like cashmere As we march to the rhythm On the palace floor Ah,
1: She does.
0: Thanks for attending the dinner party.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Happy Memorial Day from all of us at the dinner party. R- Rico, it's December. Oh, yeah, but um, Brian Cranston convinced me to recycle one of our old scripts from this year. Oh. Yeah,
0: actually, here's some dialogue for you. Okay, cool. <clears throat> it's election season, and the man to beat is Herman Cain.